Go ahead and turn in your Bibles tonight to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. We are going to begin a series on Sunday evenings going through each of the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles include 1 and 2 Timothy and also the letter to Titus. They are pastoral because, of course, it's written from the Apostle Paul to pastors, Timothy and Titus, as he's sort of changing the guard. We'll get into all that kind of stuff in a minute. Uh, We are going to go through them in a different order, not in the order that's in your Bible. We're going to go 1 Timothy and then Titus and then back to 2 Timothy, only because uh, it makes for a better sequence in terms of themes and in terms of what's, uh, what Paul is talking about. And 2 Timothy is really a letter of finality. Uh, it's Tim- uh, Paul coming to the end of his life. He, is, he, he knows that he's aware that he is not only just getting older, but there's a sort of a changing of the guard, so to speak, in terms of what's happening in the church, so it'll make sense for us to kind of end on that letter. But imagine for me, uh, before we get into the meat of what I want to talk about tonight, imagine with me that you are the CEO of a global Fortune 500 company. Now that sounds pretty good to us, um, but you have built this company from the ground up. You have uh, established all of its policies. You've established all of the procedures and protocols that have made this company successful. And it it can really, uh, for all intents and purposes, you are the one who has built this company. You are responsible for its success. But now you are getting a lot more gray hairs, (laughs) you are getting older, and you sort of see the writing on the wall that as this company has grown and you have gotten up in years, that your time as the leader of this company is coming to an end. And that you see the looming change in industry, perhaps, with new technologies that you can't keep up with. But fortunately, you have mentored several young rising employees to take over when you are gone. You have brought them under your wing. You have guided them as they have come up in the ranks of your company. And you are now going to ensure the success, the, the success of your company by giving these pupils somewhat, these pupils, for lack of a better word, uh, some essays to tell them everything that you have ever known and did uh, to establish this company. To establish this business. You want to see the ongoing success of it last for a long time. And so you have handpicked these guys to take over when you are gone. That's a really silly way of saying that's what Paul is doing here. (laughs) Essentially, Paul is writing here to Timothy and to Titus... uh, Letters, essays, he is writing to them things that he learned on the front lines of apostolic ministry. And now he is passing on what he has learned to Timothy and Titus for the ongoing duration of the church. And in these pastorals, again, as I said earlier, Paul, our beloved apostle, the, the apostle who wrote the bulk of your New Testament, he is now passing the torch from his ministry to these younger pastors and preachers, Timothy and Titus. These, these young men will become the primary voices for the church. 
And Paul knows that. That's why he's adamant about these young men keeping the faith. Or as you'll see repeated throughout these letters, this idea of sound doctrine and guarding sound doctrine. Look at verse really quickly. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 18 and 19. Paul just spells it out. He says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou might... Might it, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. Jump over to Second Timothy chapter 1, just in way of kind of introducing the themes that we'll see repeated. Second Timothy 1 verse 14, he says in this closing letter that good thing. Which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. That good thing is the gospel. That good thing, that good deposit, he calls it elsewhere. Look at Titus chapter 1 in verse 9. Just a few pages over. Titus 1 9, he says the same thing. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince. The gainsayers. Again, he is encouraging them to, again, hold fast to this faith, this sound doctrine. I think that's because Paul is anticipating the futility of his life. He knows he's coming to the end. and He senses this wind of change in the church. You can kind of sense it in his writing. Uh, You can sense it in what he's talking about here. In both these letters, primarily 1 Timothy though, you see him encouraging Timothy against this wave of departure from the church and the disparaging of the truth. Turn back to 1 Timothy 1 and again look at those ending verses from the first chapter where he says, Holding faith in a good conscience, which some have, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may not may learn not to blaspheme. These and others, as he elsewhere talks about, have disparaged the truth of the gospel, have uh, really diminished and diluted the truth of the church. And Paul knows this, and now he kind of senses a new phase of pastoral ministry, a phase where he's not necessarily evangelizing, but now we get into sort of a new phase of ministry. It's a defense of the faith. Really, that's what he is encouraging Timothy to do here, is defend what we have come to learn and know about Christ. This is what the new season is for Paul. And now he's passing on all of these tenets of faith and belief and truth in the gospel, so that Timothy and Titus might themselves be able to defend the faith which Paul has spent his life for. There was at this time a myriad of plagiarized gospels. At this time of Paul's writing is when the first sort of wave of uh, first century uh, letters are being passed around. You have gospels that we have included here and then other gospels that we don't have included in our scriptures. Did you know in fact that there's two other letters to the Corinthian church? We only have two uh, of them in our Bibles. There's two other ones that aren't included. and There's a ton of other letters that we can point to that were apostolic but they're not included in our Bibles. 
But there's a lot of falsified gospels going around. And such is why Paul is being so adamant here about holding to sound doctrine. Hold to what you know. Hold to what we have taught you. And in this time, there's this, there's this growing idea of, of an uh, infection in the church called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is this idea that, a, that in order to have superior, superior spirituality, you have to go into higher planes of truth. Higher planes of knowledge. That there's, there's higher wavelengths that you can attain to. Which makes you more spiritual. Makes you more favorable unto God. And the adherence of such ideas. Were often just inundated with all these ancient myths. And legalities and genealogies and such. That's why in this first letter especially. Paul is warning Timothy. Uh, to beware of what these false teachers are doing. They think that they know what they're talking about. But they have no idea what they're talking about Paul is saying. That's where you get verse um, verse number 7 of 1 Timothy 1. We'll get there soon where he says. Desiring to be teachers of the law. Understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. They, these Gnostic preachers were desiring to be preachers that were famous and had popularity. But they had no idea what they were talking about Paul was saying. And so he's encouraging Timothy and Titus to be encouraged by the gospel. To, to really find themselves grounded in the truth of God's word. Because he knows that this crisis was coming. It's a crisis of a defense of the faith and he's concerned for them. And that's why he writes. His emphasis here is, again we can look at verse 4. Where he says, neither give he to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do these endless genealogies or I love how the King James renders it in verse 6 where he calls it vain jangling which is just useless senseless dialogue. That's what he is accusing these Gnostics of. He's saying beware of these things. Don't get distracted by all those things that can come in and confuse. As he says they cause more questions than what they answer. They minister questions. They minister confusion. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't a minister of confusion. It's a minister of sound mind and calmness and assurance. So with that sort of as our backdrop. We're going to engage each of these letters and again, we're going to engage each of them in that order. First Timothy, Titus, and the Second Timothy, which I think will uh, might lead to some repetition of themes and topics, because he he writes both of these letters, First uh, uh, Timothy and Titus, probably around the same time. But that's okay because we're going to find it, I think, very beneficial. And I want to say at the outset that. Even though these have traditionally been called pastoral epistles, that don't think that they're not useful because you're not a pastor. <laughs> Obviously, that these letters are pastoral because they were written to pastors, but they have a much broader, wider range of, of uh, meaning and effectiveness for all of us in the church. These letters indeed are for the church. They, I think, give us the doctrine of the church. How it should be formed. How it could defend itself against false doctrine. How it could defend itself against confusion and infection coming into the church. These pastoral letters deal with the earliest beginnings 
of the church and its doctrine and its institutions. And here as what we're going to find is Paul doesn't necessarily introduce new doctrines. He's not t- giving the, the, like he does in the letter to the Romans, for instance, where he talks about the gospel in its core at length. He goes into Romans 5, he introduces this idea that Jesus is the second Adam and all those types of things. He doesn't introduce new doctrine, but he actually just reaffirms what they should have already knowed, uh, known. And he kind of gives them crystallized truth, so to speak. It's truth that has become so clear and confirmed that he's just reminding them of it. And he writes to sustain them, sustain Paul, or excuse me, sustain Timothy and Titus in their ministries as they minister to the church. This is the content of the pastorals. It's simple truth. It's earnest doctrine that breathes, I think, simple and faithful devotion. That's really what we find in these letters. It's it's doctrine that leads to devotion. And you could say, I think, that these pastorals, they present to us the gospel of maturity in Christ. They give us a sense of what the good news does in the life of the Christian. Yes, it's doctrine, and we need to reaffirm doctrine and preach doctrine, but that doctrine shouldn't just stay alone in our heads. It should be visibly seen in our lives, i.e. devotion. It's doctrine that leads to a change in how we live. And that's what Paul is desirous of. He's desirous to see these changes, yes, in these ministers, but also in the church abroad as well. And that's what we, where we come to verses 1 and 2. So we're going to spend the rest of our time this evening in just these first two verses. Now it seem, might seem kind of crazy because this is just the salutation. But I want to warn you not to skip the salutations in these epistles. It's easy to do so. It sounds formulaic where Paul is just writing and he's talking about himself, introducing himself, and just saying nice salutary things to introduce a letter. But actually, I think what we're going to find here is Paul packs a lot of doctrine in just a few short words. But, and I think that's because we have to kind of... We can't breeze over these introductions, actually. These salutations are actually, I like to call them portable gospels. Because really, what we're going to find is he preaches the gospel in just two verses. Actually, a couple words. And I think that's because he is aligning the hearts of his protege, Timothy, here. But also the church at Ephesus, where Timothy was ministering. He's aligning their hearts and minds to... Uh, to know and understand what's going to follow. Just as a way of further introduction, it goes without saying, but it bears repeating that Paul is the author of these letters. Paul indeed is the author of them, even though that has received some criticism and skepticism in recent years. All of that is unfounded and really just a bunch of hogwash. Um, That Paul is the author is corroborated by a lot of early church writings, but also it's, it's interesting that Paul, he outs himself as an apostle right away. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior. He affirming his apostleship, affirming the idea that he has the authority in the early church. And that the rest of this letter should be seen as authoritative, as apostolic, as coming from the commandment of God. And what I think, what I find is interesting is that 
that Paul is introducing himself to a guy who already knew him. You think about that's like me introducing myself to my dad. Hi, I'm Bradley Joseph Gray. I'm your son. That seems weird. That seems redundant. And Paul is introducing himself to his son, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, why would he do that? Timothy certainly knew who Paul was. He knew who, where uh, Paul's position was. They've been together for a long time at this period. If you might remember, Paul meets Timothy in Acts chapter 16 on his second missionary journey as he's going through the cities Derby and Lystra. And he was actually, if, let me just turn there really quick in Acts chapter 16, because there's an interesting verse we get there. This is Acts 16, where Paul is meeting Timothy. He sa- it says, Then came he, that is Paul, to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there, named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. So Paul meets Timothy, he knows, or he learns of Timothy's reputation. You see that there in verse 2 of Acts 16, where it says that he was well reported. He was a highly regarded young man, a man who had a good testimony. He was in good standing with all the regions surrounding these cities. And what we learn from the, the book of 2 Timothy is that these women that are mentioned here are Timothy's mom and grandma. Those are the women who nurtured and brought up Timothy in the faith. And then Paul takes him under his wing, brings him on the rest of his journey. And such is their relationship. That now Timothy is a, is a protege, an apprentice, so to speak, of the Apostle Paul. And he's going to be with him throughout all of the ups and downs of Paul's ministry. So, again, we go back to 1 Timothy. Why this redundancy in this title? Why repeat what Timothy already would know? He knows that Paul is an apostle. Well, I think he identifies himself in this formal manner, this manner that kind of seems stiff and formal, because he is wanting to bring a heightened sense of significance to what he's about to say. I am Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And here is what I'm about to tell you, Timothy. These words are solemn and serious and true, and you have to take them to heart. These words would have, uh, have, would have had added weight to them, added significance to them, because they were apostolic and authoritative. Timothy would have been very alert to what was about to happen, what Paul was about to say. These words of instruction, therefore, would be words that Timothy would adhere to closely because he knew from where they were coming. They weren't just coming from Paul's lips. They were coming from God. These were God's words to Timothy of words which he were, were to give back to the church. And by adhering to these words, he would then be continuing in the mission of the gospel for the glory of God. We see in verse 3, back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that Paul has left him at Ephesus. 
1 Timothy 1.3, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Tradition holds that Timothy spent the rest of his pastoral ministry in the city of Ephesus. And the letter here is born out of Paul's concern for Timothy. Again, as we noted earlier, his concern for this attack that was coming on to the church. But also he is a father concerned for his son. Notice again verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, mine own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Here we have that relationship of Paul and Timothy right at the outset. He calls him his son, my own son in the faith. Paul and Timothy, you see, were more than just friends. They were more than just a teacher and a student. They were father and son in the faith, not biologically, but spiritually. Paul had taken him under such care and concern and mentorship that he, cons- he considered Timothy to be his own son. He loved Timothy dearly. And he calls him this often. Actually, look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2. He calls him the same, uh, he gives him the same greeting. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son. Or in in, uh, the second chapter, verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He calls him his son. This is Paul's uh, uh, spiritual offspring that he is uniquely concerned for. He is uniquely concerned for Timothy to carry on the mission of gospel proclamation. Of carrying on the ministry of the church that Paul had established. Such is why he frames this letter in the fundamental message of the gospel. Did you notice that? Look at verse 2 again of chapter 1. He says unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus and, the, and Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at the close of the letter. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 21. Look at how he closes. Paul says, "Which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee." Amen. He frames the letter in the fundamental message of the gospel. He's reminding Timothy right from the outset, my son, be strong in grace. My son, be confirmed and sure of what the gospel is. What is the gospel? It's grace, mercy, and peace from God. From God coming down. It's grace, mercy, and peace to you, Timothy. It's to you and to his church. This is the gospel. It's the gospel in three words. Grace, mercy, peace. Not from Timothy's own conjuring or coming up with it. It's from God. And our uh, God, our Father. And Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what Timothy was being charged with to preach. It was to, he was to preach the gospel. The gospel for others. And also he's being reminded to preach to himself. I think that's why Paul was reminding him here of this right at the very outset. Timothy, this is for you. 
This gospel that you have been charged to preach, preach it to yourself first. Because you need it just as much. Timothy's ministerial effectiveness was directly tied to his recognition of his desperation for the very same gospel he was preaching. The only way that he would be effective in his ministry at Ephesus is if he knew that he too was one who desperately needed the grace, mercy, and peace that came from God. And any pastor that has, wants any effectiveness, any Christian that wants any effectiveness in their witness must realize the same thing. That they are just as desperate for the gospel to be real in their life as the lost person who is out there living a life of sin. Both are in desperate need to be reminded of the fact that grace, mercy, and peace come from one source. God, our Father. Timothy, you need to be reminded of this. It goes without saying, I need to be reminded of this. Every pastor who stands behind a pulpit needs to be reminded of this. Every Christian needs to be reminded of this. That their one uh, sort of sustaining factor is the fact that God the Father has given us grace, mercy, and peace through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is what we were reminded of. This is what Timothy was being reminded of. And notice on what authority Paul is saying this. I love this. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God. I love that. Paul was so sure and confident and, and just bold in what he knew happened to him. Remember what happened on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 8. He knew what happened to him there. That Jesus, the risen Savior, met him there. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't something. He wasn't on any sort of hallucinatory drugs or anything. He saw Jesus. He was met by the Christ. And he was confident of that. Such is why he wrote so confidently. Because he knew that he too was an apostle. Because he had seen the risen Lord. Such is why he has such boldness in writing. He knew who rescued him. It wasn't just some angel. It was God. He says, by commandment of God. But again, I want you to notice this phrase. Because when I first was reading this letter, it it jumped out to me. Notice what he says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior... And Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. You notice what he does there? He attributes the saving power of the cross to God himself. That all of what happened on the cross, how Jesus has saved us from our sins, the very gospel which Paul has been preaching for his whole life up to this point, is now being attributed not just to Jesus the man, but to God the Father. It is God our Savior. Right away, in just a couple short sentences, Paul is affirming the very deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he wasn't just a man, he wasn't just a prophet, he wasn't just a good teacher, he wasn't just a nice person. Jesus was God in the flesh. And as he was dying, the very blood of God was saving us. 
The very blood of the cross was divine blood. It was God's own blood that he shed for us on that tree. Such is what Paul is writing here. That is God who is our Savior. And he repeats this often in this letter. Look at chapter 2 verse 3. He says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Look at chapter 4 verse 10. He says it again, for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Flip over to Titus. He repeats the same thing to Titus. Look at chapter 1 verse 3 of Titus. But hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Look at Titus 2.10. Not purloining, but showing, uh, excuse me, showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. From the outset, Paul is affirming the truth that Jesus was God. He's God our Savior. This is what is our hope of salvation. This is why it is sure. Our hope of salvation is sure because it comes from Jesus. And Jesus is God. He was able to bear the brunt of Calvary because he was God. And that should make us marvel. Not just the fact that he could bear it. But the fact that he did. The fact that God condescended. God himself He didn't send one of his angels to do his bidding. He came down from heaven himself. He came down to heaven for us. In one verse, Paul has established the sovereignty of God and the deity of Christ. Which Timothy was to affirm. Jesus is our hope because he is God. And it's right there in his name, Jehovah, or Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Again, he's not just another man, not just another teacher. He is the Lord. He is God. I'm reminded of that uh, apologetic trilemma. Those are big words that just mean, um, are you familiar with C.S. Lewis's other work? Not just the Chronicles of Narnia. He has a lot of other theological works. And in one of them, he has this assertion. It's an apologetic assertion in defense of the truth of the Bible. And in it, he asserts that, uh, he says this. C.S. Lewis writing, either this man, he's talking about Jesus... Was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. It's the trilemma known as liar, lunatic or Lord. That if we are confronted with the Jesus that's in the scriptures. Those are the only three options. And in fact actually C.S. Lewis was bouncing off of another theologian. There's a Scottish theologian that predated C.S. Lewis. His name is John Duncan. And he actually asserted this trilemma before Lewis. And he says this. Christ either deceived mankind by being a conscious fraud. Or he was himself deluded and self-deceived. Or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. It is unavoidable. When you're confronted with scripture, either Jesus is a lunatic, he's crazy, making all these ridiculous assertions about the temple and how it's going to be raised in three days after it's destroyed. 
Or he's a liar and he's just fooling everyone like all other false teachers. Or he is a God. Those are our only three options. And Paul, at the outset, asserts that there's only really one option because he is Lord. Jesus is God. It is God, our Savior, who is Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Timothy, hold firm to this. We can say to ourselves, church, hold firm to this truth. Jesus was God, is God. He's God for us. God coming to us and God dying for us. This is what our gospel announces. This is what our church affirms. This is what the tradition of our church has held to and what we will continue to hold to. It doesn't matter what man may conjure up, what silly evidence he may find that may prove that Jesus didn't really die. Some theory that Jesus didn't really rise again or whatever. This is the truth. Jesus was God. And God in the flesh. And God who died. But more than that. God who rose again. Defeating death. Thereby conquering all of our enemies. This is the Jesus we are confronted with. In the Bible. This is the Jesus that Paul was commissioned to preach. And such is his assertion, if we're left with this trilemma, that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord, we have to either accept what he says, or, or we have to reject what he says. We cannot be indifferent to it. We either have to believe that he was who he says he was, and did what he said that he did, and that he's going to do what he promised that he was going to do, or we have to reject all of that in one fell swoop. And Paul is saying here, believe it, Timothy. These false preachers are going to try and claim all of these ridiculous notions. And in fact, if you read early church history, one of the fundamental doctrines that was attacked right away was the deity of Christ. Either there were some that believed that he wasn't flesh, that he wasn't a man, or some that claimed that he was just a man. Either way, they were getting rid of the notion that Jesus was both at the same time. He was God and man. He was our Lord and he was our Savior. He is God for us. The man standing in our stead. The second Adam. This is the truth of our gospel. That the ruler of all the heavens has come to be our Redeemer. This is the truth that Paul was affirming. And guess what? Paul knew it to be true because he had felt it himself. I'm going to jump ahead and kind of uh, steal my own thunder from a couple weeks from now. But look at verse 15. Because we have to get to this verse. Paul knew this to be true. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew who rescued him. Paul knew who saved him. 
Paul knew what happened to him, and that's why he wrote so earnestly. Because he gloried in this God who was his Christ, who was his Savior. Such is what he's commissioning Timothy to be taken up by. Timothy, don't be distracted. So we're going to look at next week as we get into some of the following verses in chapter 1. Where you don't be distracted by all of these silly arguments that are going on around you. Hold firm to this truth. Be just so entirely taken up with Christ that you just can't help but preach Him. That was Paul's ministry. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2 where he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And essentially he's saying the same thing. Timothy, know this. This is true. Be taken up with Christ. And the more you're taken up with Christ, the more you will live like Him. Timothy, this is your mission. Timothy, this is your mandate. And so it is ours. Let us pray.